G'day and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Fellows as well as CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you know you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Now, today I would like to introduce you to Katie Sutatis, who is doing a PhD in Reproduction and Developmental Sciences in the Biomedical and Molecular Sciences Department under the, under the supervision of Dr. Chandra Tayad. Welcome to Grad Chat, Katie. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you so much. It is really good. Now, we've been trying to catch up with each other for a bit, and we keep kind of changing things a little bit. Sometimes <laughs> it's because of trying to get the studio, yeah. which, of course, we have to book every now and then. Um, but I'm glad you're able to, to make it. But before we uh, start talking about your research, I think it might be good if you can give me a bit of a background of how you came to be here at Queen's and wanting to do biomedical molecular sciences and, and in particular in the reproductive and developmental sciences area. Yeah, that's a really great starting point. Um, so I actually did my undergrad at McMaster University in kinesiology. And while I was there, I really realized that I loved two major fields. I loved anatomy and immunology. And so I ended up at Queen's to do my master's degree in the anatomical sciences here. Great program. Um, yes, wonderful. Um, and it's really unique. So you get to focus on anatomy, which I loved. You get to do a lot of teaching, another interest of mine. And then you get to do a research thesis. And so it was through that thesis that I thought would be a wonderful opportunity to actually test myself and see if research was what I wanted to do and mm -hmm. particularly actually dive into that immunology topic. Um, and I landed on Dr. Tiedi's lab, who does work uh, with endometriosis and immune cells, which we'll be talking a lot about today. Um, and it just, yeah, it seemed like a perfect fit. So after my master's, I decided to stay on for my PhD and now we're here. <laughs> now you are here. Actually, yeah, you're right. That anatomical sciences program is awesome. And a lot of people mm. misunderstand the program. They think it's all about the teaching side of yes. it, but it does, does have that research component. Yes. So it is, as you said, very handy to see if it's research for me. Exactly. Or should I just keep going in the education teaching side yeah, of things? No, it's perfect for that, for sure. Yeah, so very, very lucky. So I guess we're lucky that you stayed on. <laughs> and, and what year are you in in your PhD? Yeah, so I'm technically still in my first year. I started in January, and that's because the anatomical sciences program is actually just 16 months. Right. So I started in the fall of 2020. I defended my master's thesis uh, this past December 2021. Congratulations. Thank you. And then, uh, yeah, continued on with the thesis work that I was doing in my research uh, project with my PhD starting in January. That's good that you're able to sort of carry it on, yeah. isn't it? Because a lot of people have to at times have to start from the beginning yes or maybe that's because they've just got another idea in mind that they For want sure. to go but yeah. I always think it's nice if you can continue because you've done a bit of the background already <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so it's actually interesting the work that I did in my thesis we're not actually talking about today this is a newer project so okay. kind of segueing both of those things together the work for my thesis we're actually looking to wrap up that in a manuscript and submit that by the end of the month so we're getting kind of close uh -oh. actually <laughs> um, exciting stuff but a lot of work editing obviously um, but so this is kind of the next step, next step. in my uh, my research so pivoting a little bit but still staying in staying in that immunology kind of realm that's terrific so I guess we should look at what you're actually doing <laughs> yeah. as you said segue into that so your research topic 
And again, this is what happens in the health sciences. Some of these titles are a bit strange or for, for those of us like me. And so your research topic is the contribution of interleukin-33-driven group 2 innate lymphoid cells in endometriosis, pathophysiology, and their therapeutic targeting. What would that be in general terms for people yes, like me for sure so as you're mentioning we can be very pointed with our topics yeah which but, makes sense because you're at the micro level exactly but really what we're trying to understand with my project is the influence of this protein which is called interleukin 33 or il 33 and how it's influencing a type of immune cell which are called group 2 innate lymphoid cells okay. or ilc2s we call them because it's a lot shorter. <laughs> um, so how IL-33, that protein, is affecting this immune cell and how they're driving certain characteristics of the disease and ultimately making patient symptoms worse. Um, and then looking to see if we can actually target that therapeutically to then kind of mediate some of those symptoms that patients are experiencing, such as uh, chronic pelvic pain, predominantly would be the major one. Okay, and it's interesting too when you, you talk about the immune part of we hear so much about that these days, yeah. having gone through COVID. For sure. You know, how can we immunize ourselves against this, yeah. this, and this? And of course, this is just another version of that, not quite in the same realm. Yeah. Which I guess happens, affects some people, not necessarily others. So, firstly, I guess the obvious question to me is what is endometriosis? Perfect. A great place to start. So, endometriosis is going to be a disease of the female reproductive system. We also call that a gynecological disease. But so what's happening is that the lining of the uterus, which is called the endometrium to be very specific, but that is growing outside of the uterus within the abdomen. So we call these endometriotic lesions and they can grow on other abdominal organs. So you can find them on the bladder or on the oh. rectum. They can even adhere to the pelvic wall itself or other parts of the reproductive system like the ovary or the fallopian tubes. And so you can imagine if you have this foreign tissue that's growing somewhere else, it's going to cause a lot of inflammation, hence the focus on immune cells, right. um, which can also lead to a lot of pain in patients. So endometriosis patients experience chronic pelvic pain as a primary symptom. And because this is such an internal disease, we still have a lot of issues with um, having available biomarkers to actually identify that someone has this. Right. Uh, the current gold standard is to diagnose patients with diagnostic laparoscopic surgery, which is where you actually go through with like a little camera tube and, and visualize those lesions that are there. Right. And then you can take a biopsy of them and confirm that uh, that it actually is endometrial tissue, so from the uterus. But that takes anywhere from seven to twelve years to actually diagnose patients. Oh, yeah. So it's a long time. It's a long time because even with a little camera. Sorry to interrupt you, no. but even with a little camera, and you're saying you're looking for the lesions. Yeah. Can you not sort of pick it up through an x-ray? or? Yeah, so they're looking to do like ultrasounds and MRIs, anything like that sort of diagnostic imaging, as you're mentioning. But we say that the disease is very heterogeneous. It's a lovely, Which means? Yes, it means it's very diverse. It presents itself in a lot of different ways. Okay. And so the lesions, because they can grow throughout the abdominal cavity, sometimes are really hard to pick up on different imaging softwares. Okay. And so that's why they say that the, the gold standard in diagnosing this is to actually like find them inside of the cavity cavity because depending on where they're presenting, how big they are, and kind of the stage of the disease, we say that it goes from mild, moderate to severe, with right. severe being that there's more of them, they're larger, they're penetrating deeper into the tissues. Depending where you fall on that gradient, it can be hard to visualize them with these alternative imaging techniques. And so, yeah, we have these really large times and diagnostic delays. And with other reproductive diseases that women experience, the unfortunate thing is a lot of them do have 
pelvic pain as uh, a symptom. Right. And it typically tends to be kind of linked together with, oh, it's menstrual pain, you have cramps. That's not really that serious, or we can't really attribute that to something specific. It's kind of seen as a generalized symptom, right. which is why patients sometimes feel like they're not being heard and, and saying that they have these kinds of symptoms going on and some delays in diagnosing them. So how common then is endometriosis? And what are the common typical treatments right now that are being offered because like you said I mean it staggered me when you said it kind of take up to 12 years to Mm -hmm. sort of diagnose and I can totally understand that because you're talking about um, period pain and things like all cramps and stuff so how do you distinguish between the both and how does a woman go I think this is more than just a cramp yes for sure so um to answer your question about prevalence really in the population. Mm-hmm. We're looking at about one in 10 women approximately have endometriosis. Is that in Canada? That's worldwide, worldwide. is typically estimated. Um, again, kind of hard with these diagnostic delays. We're mm-hmm. unsure. A lot of things go unreported. So some people estimate that that could be even higher potentially. But yeah, it is more prevalent than we than we think. And so in talking about these pelvic pain that patients are experiencing, obviously a lot with menstruation is one thing, but they can also experience pain with other bodily functions. So urinating, defecating, pain with intercourse, all of those things are kind of contributing factors. Yes. So some of those could definitely distinguish from just like menstrual cramps. So adding more to that as well. And ways that people are currently being treated for this is primarily through hormonal contraceptives, which are... So endometriosis is what's called an estrogen dominant disease. So uh, women produce estrogen and progesterone and estrogen has a really big influence in promoting the growth of this endometrial tissue and contributing to a lot of that inflammation. And so because of that, they'll provide hormonal contraceptives to dampen that kind of hormonal effect, which then kind of limits the effects that that's having. So we're kind of reducing the immune cells that may be reacting or reducing the growth of those tissues. But again, a lot of these women also, which we haven't mentioned yet, they do experience infertility in a high proportion of the population. So about 30 to 50% of patients with endometriosis will experience infertility. Obviously, if you're trying to conceive, you don't want to be on a hormonal contraceptive. So there's a lot of contraindications that go on then for this population about the best way to treat them. And unfortunately, there are no other therapeutics that are really available. It's you either provide contraceptives or you do lesion removal through, as we mentioned, that laparoscopic surgery you could have to visualize them. You can also then take them away, but they do tend to reoccur. And so other times women will just have a full hysterectomy. Sometimes um, they'll just kind of be told like, have your kids and then we'll just take out your uterus. Is that right? Yeah. So it's kind of not... drastic. Yeah, a little bit, but understanding where it came from. But obviously we're trying to find more now targeted therapeutics that we can intervene in better ways that may help a more widespread patient population than just those that aren't looking to conceive at this moment. Just another question. You're talking about lesions. So my understanding of a lesion is kind of like a, a break. And so it gotcha. means it's seeping out. So gotcha. the endometrial lining is not staying put where it is. And of course you know the blood that builds up there to sort of if if a woman does get pregnant that's where the baby sort of sits mm-hmm. etc so with this lesion it's actually leaking out so it's not having a chance to have a proper period and shedding but because it's going somewhere else yeah so okay we can comment on this so the one of the they call them etiologies the origins of disease one highly 
debated point is what's called retrograde menstruation. So during menstruation, the lining of the uterus sloughs off and then it leaves through the vagina. Yeah. That's the normal way we would call that anterograde. It's going in the direction it should. Right. So then retrograde means it's actually being pushed back up through the fallopian tubes and then dumping into the abdominal cavity. Okay. And it's actually discussed that this is a common occurrence, that this happens in the majority of uh, menstruating individuals. But in those with endometriosis, those tissues, instead of being broken down by the immune cells that would be receiving them, they're actually adhering to the structures in the abdominal cavity. Other areas. And okay. so that's why we think of um, some people look for genetic predispositions of those tissues that would make them maybe more sticky or would make them want to actually attach and start regrowing as menstrual tissue right um or endometrial-like tissue. We don't want to say they're exactly the same, but something like it. Um, but also then we think in our lab's perspective, as we're focused on immune cells, that there's an immune dysregulation that's occurring in these patients where their immune cells aren't clearing or recognizing these tissues um, as not supposed to be there. And then mm-hmm. kind of allowing them to continue to propagate and then contributing to the, the maintenance uh, of those tissues in these different locations. So before we get more into the in-depth of your protein yeah. and immune cell... Does this, you, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but does it affect any one group more than others in relation, for instance, race or diet or lifestyle? Because I know you said one in 10, mm-hmm. but uh, it, uh, around the world, but not every country has the same sort of diagnosis as, say, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so even, even in that one in 10, is it affecting a certain group of people? Yeah, so... um, A woman, I should say. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) I would say that currently, I don't know if there's any specific populations that have been identified as having a greater um, risk, per se, Mm -hmm. um, as to have this disease occur. A lot of what we find is that other races may be underreported due to a lack of ability to receive medical care. And so as we mentioned, a high proportion of these patients experience infertility. And so that means that they're going to end up seeking out... Um, IVF treatments or in vitro fertilization treatments, they'll seek fertility assistance. Okay. Um, and so in a lot of people that are actually seeking fertility assistance, that's how they find out that they have endometriosis. So right. that's a common pathway to identify disease. And so if you're thinking that that is kind of a limiting factor in that you need to have a certain amount of wealth or status to access those kinds of services, mm-hmm. then other people that don't have that may just be like, may not necessarily realize that they're... Um, that's the reason for their infertility. Exactly. Yes. Right. Um, so I think that's one pathway that's kind of been identified as a barrier to uh, care for some patients and is obviously going to be affected by racial and socioeconomic statuses. Right. Um, and we know that a lot of reproductive health care is unfortunately disproportionately affecting patients due to their access to medical care. Um, so I can't necessarily comment on the risk factor per race or right. something like that. But I think a lot of those contributing factors through wealth and socioeconomic status. So it doesn't status. show up in, in the genetics, you know? So is this something that's passed down from one generation yeah. to the next? So it definitely, there are genetic studies that show that families, it does tend to run in families. Whether that though can still be a genetic predisposition or the environmental factors of that family right. are also hard to discern. So other factors that can contribute to the disease are a heavier menstrual flow. Because in theory, if we think about that retrograde menstruation, if you're producing a lot Lot more menstrual fluid and it's going back into your abdominal cavity, maybe it's just too much for your system to handle. Right. If you start menarche, so if you actually start menstruating at an earlier age, you're at an increased risk factor because now you're going through menstruation for a longer period of your life than someone else. Again, right. the same concept that you're just exposing yourself to this more risk more. Right. Um, so a lot of them are more just like 
physiological pathways, maybe more so than race uh, or ethnicity specific ones. And so a lot of that is still trying to be teased out in a lot of the research to determine what are the specific factors. So just in that, I mean, you've already told us a huge amount of <laughs> information. Yeah, I know it's a lot. <laughs> but of course, you're only honing into a couple of different things. So exactly. let's get on to that yeah. because this is what excites you. <laughs> I could tell you, it's exciting you. So how did you land on this particular protein, which was the interleukin-33 interleukin yeah. and the immune cell type to study, which is the group two in innate lymphoid cells? What, how did you land on that? And, and I guess what is their relevance to yeah, the disease? for sure. So I'm actually building off of a previous PhD student who graduated in December, laps for Dr. Jessica Miller now. Good work. <laughs> Love to hear that. Yeah. And so our lab has noticed that this protein IL-33, it's what's called an alarmin, but that just means that it is a very potent immune protein for the immune response. So when IL-33 is released from cells, it recruits a lot of immune cells and it's kind of uh, signaling that something's going wrong here. Okay. So if cells are damaged, they release this and then everyone wants to respond. Okay. Uh, and so IL-33 has been elevated in certain patients with endometriosis. And so people are thinking, well, maybe this is one of the potent inflammatory proteins that we can then study to understand why there's a heightened immune response in these patients. And so that's kind of that protein and where that started. To think about the ILC2s or those group two innate lymphoid cells, they're kind of a newer cell type, the whole class of innate lymphoid cells. There are three of them, but this one, number two, is associated with some of the features of the disease that we think of. So endometriosis lesions, they can become fibrotic. So that's one of the characteristics of disease. And so these ILC2s are kind of a mediator of the immune response. So they can trigger other types of immune cells. So things like macrophages or eosinophils or other subsets of immune cells to act and promote what's called type two inflammation. But so that's associated with features like fibrosis right. and heightened immune response. And they produce certain other proteins that can be detected and signify that this immune cell is at play. And so as it's contributing to these characteristics of the disease. Ultimately, these can also manifest as pain for patients if we're increasing the inflammation that's present, if we're increasing the fibrosis and the adhesion of these lesions, things kind of get stuck and they're painful. They don't want to move as much. Mm. I know, not a very nice visual. No. <laughs> Sorry. But so... I can, I can relate to some of that. But, but so if, if we understand that this immune cell is potentially contributing to these features, what we're trying to see is if we block the interaction of this protein in this immune cell from perpetuating that cascade of other immune cells and proteins that it was kind of triggering, then we're seeing, will that reduce patient pain and reduce the progression of the disease? Because these are seen to be elevated in later stage disease patients. But why that, those particular two? Yeah, so I think it was just that because they've been identified as like very potent contributors to this immune response, we're trying to see if they're the ones that are actually orchestrating all of this. Mm -hmm. If we prevent them from functioning together, can we stop a lot of the inflammation from occurring? So a lot of the other immune cells are more so, we could say they're effectors. They're just performing their job. But this one, because it is involved at a more like higher stage, right. we're thinking that if we can kind of nip that one in the bud, then maybe everyone else can kind of calm down a little bit and we can bring some of that infiltration but if, but down. If, I know you're early in, in it, but yeah. if you've 
find that that's not the case, yes. then you, I'm assuming you just go on to the next one. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, no, so um, the work that Jessica had done for us has kind of established that they are a key contributor to promoting okay. this type of immune response. Right. So that was our preliminary work in kind of establishing that this is a network that's worth investigating. Right. In other conditions, we also see the interplay between this protein and this immune cell. So in asthma, it's really common. Okay. And so they've also identified that these two are primary contributors to the amount of inflammation that's seen that contributes to um, asthmatic symptoms and, and disease progression. And so we're kind of piggybacking off of the basis of information they've kind of curated right. and seeing if it applies specifically within our disease and, and in what ways it could be different. So how do you t test that sort of thing mm -hmm. in the lab? Or do you need women to come in? Yeah, so um, that unfortunately <laughs> would not pass part, ethics. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we can't do patient <laughs> well, testing. Yeah, can't do patient <laughs> testing, but we can use patient samples. So we can get samples from patients like blood. We collect something that's called peritoneal fluid, mm -hmm. which in those surgeries where they would go in with the camera and that laparoscopic surgery, they would dump in what's called like PBS or just like a water saline solution okay. and kind of try to collect any immune cells or proteins that would be present in that space. So we can analyze that as a sample um, to see what's kind of present in the microenvironment of the lesions in the abdomen. Again, blood, or we can also use tissues. So they'll take, they'll provide us the, the lesion biopsies. And then we also will look at biopsies of the endometrium from the uterus itself as well to compare between how is this looking in the uterus versus in this abdominal space? How are these tissues different when they are similar? Right. So those are all the patient aspects that we can use. And we can try to answer some of these questions more so based around, can we find this protein? Is it higher in patients versus controls? Those are the right. kinds of questions that we would get from patient samples. We have cell culture models that we use. So we have different human cell lines. Um, so we have one that uh, the endometrium, so that lining of the uterus, is composed of an epithelial and a stromal cell type. Mm -hmm. And so we have then cell lines, one for each, that we can kind of see if we treat them with this protein, how do they respond? Right. What do these cells produce? And is that different at different doses that reflect what we found in patients. So we can look at that aspect. And then if we wanna kind of get a more holistic perspective, we do have a mouse model of disease that we use to kind of recreate the scenario of endometriosis. Right. And then in those mouse models, we can inject this inflammatory protein, that IL-33. And then upon sacrificing the mouse, we can harvest different organs and again, that peritoneal fluid, and right. then look for the immune cell types that we're interested to see with this treatment, did they increase in proportion compared to the control mice? And, and what? how did they contribute maybe to the lesion growth? Was it more vascular? Was it larger than the control mice? And so we can look at a lot of these other factors as well to, right. to get a better understanding. But yeah, it would be awesome if we could actually look, but that is very unethical. So we cannot do that, unfortunately. It's yeah. <laughs> But with anything like this, to, to, to make it stick in the scientific world, yeah. you can't just do it 10 samples. No. So how do you, how do, you do enough testing to make it beneficial or for the scientific world to go, you're onto something? Yeah, you're hitting me with the really good scientific research questions <laughs> here. I think that's always um, the hard balance of of understanding, one, your availability to samples. Mm -hmm. So trying to, as we're identifying, like, this is not very common or it's not occurring very frequently that patients are having these procedures. So we're very privileged to receive patient samples that we can. Unfortunately, they are kind of few and far between based right. on when we can access them. So a lot of our work is focused on the cell lines and the animal models right. to see are the theories that we're kind of concocting. Can we find other angles to actually see if that's 
viable. And then we really want to use our patient samples really preciously to really nail down if that's actually happening. As we said the word heterogeneous, as the disease presents itself in a lot of different ways, there's a lot of contention within the endometriosis research because there are so many different presentations of the disease. So how can you accurately represent it? Unfortunately, you really can't can't right now. So we do our best. We acknowledge a lot of our limitations and we really just provide our research from the perspective that we have and from the availability of resources that we have and offer that up to everyone else to interpret um, and use as they can. There are a lot of consortiums that are starting to kind of form in endometriosis. So there's one in Europe, uh, one in Australia, that's trying to link a lot of clinical spaces together to really maximize the usage of patient samples. Oh, that's good. No, it is. And, it, and it's really through those kinds of ways of collaborating with each other that we can overcome a lot of those barriers mm-hmm. and trying to understand that we need to do this as a team. One individual research team will not have the access and the support to answer right. all of the questions right. when it is going to present so differently for so many different patients. And so as we're identifying that this protein and this immune cell are really important and orchestrating a lot of this inflammation. We're trying to uh, demonstrate that if we inhibit this process from happening, if we inhibit this uh, protein L33 from activating these ILC2s, that we can prevent some of this inflammation and then hopefully reduce those characteristics like fibrosis and inflammation and ultimately pain that patients would experience. Mm -hmm. And so that's the the key thing that we're trying to, to do with our research right now. Working hopefully with some uh, pharmaceutical companies in the States to try to implement some of their early, they call them small molecule inhibitors. It's a really fancy name, <laughs> but they're just saying like specific targeting to to one specific aspect is, is always the goal with therapeutics. Um, and so really trying to see if those interventions can make a big difference. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where we're trying to go. It's interesting though, because I mean, a lot of the things we're, we're trying to do in the health industry is prevent in the first place, yeah. whereas this seems to be if you show the symptoms, then let's see what we can do to inhibit as opposed to try and prevent in the fir- or the first time of noticing you've got it, how can you inhibit? For sure. Which is a bit of a, a bit awkward, isn't it? Yeah. Because you have to have someone that's really doing badly. Yeah. Unfortunately, everything is very retroactive. We don't have many proactive things right now mm-hmm. because the origins of disease are still very uncertain. So we only talked about one theory of how the disease started. That yeah. was retrograde menstruation. There are others that speculate that there are other factors that maybe could be the cause. Um, people focus a lot on stem cells potentially and how stem cells in the uterus that are in that endometrial space, how they're contributing to the maintenance of these uh, lesions outside in the abdominal right. cavity. And they look through that lens. People look at genetics um, and there's a lot of different areas of focus. And so um, because it's such an internal occurrence that's happening once someone starts menstruation we don't know when in their timeline they actually get endometriosis right so it's really hard for us to make any proactive preventative measures Mm -hmm. um so unfortunately yeah it is a very retroactive process right now but one step is a good step i think (laughs) i like that one step is a good step and you know it's ticking off things as you go along then hopefully down the track it would be even easier for sure uh, awesome um I'm sure there's a lot of women listening to this or go, okay, that's how it all works, is it? <laughs> and I'm glad people are doing some research and, and to help women in certain areas of yeah. their life and uh, making things a bit easier for them. For sure. That's a big project. <laughs> that is a really big project. Yeah. And I know that must take up a lot of your time. Mm. I, I can't imagine what it must be like in a lab going through the things that you do in a lab <laughs> and trying to think of the next best thing to do. But I also know, and if you don't mind, I'm going to go on to some of the other things that you do. For sure. 
you you do a lot of other things actually, <laughs> I, which is I always find fascinating. And and one of the things is that you're um, a mentor for the Women in Science and Engineering group at Queen's, which I know does a lot of work here on campus yeah. to get more women involved in science and engineering. So what what made you get into that? Yeah, so I've always been really interested in mentorship. I think research provides a really great opportunity for that because there's new master students or new fourth mm-hmm. year students in my lab that we assist with the startings of their projects and whatnot and kind of help them with their science journey as well. Right. But I was really interested to kind of connect more with a wider Queens community. Coming in COVID times, I was really stuck with my 14 classmates in my master's program. Right. And so I'm going from an undergrad experience where I was on a varsity team and yeah. knew a whole bunch of people to come to a new institution. And I only really go to Botterill Hall in the School of Medicine. So <laughs> I just kind of walk in and out of campus. So um, I was really just trying to find more ways to connect with a a wider audience through something that I'm really interested in, which is mentorship. And I thought that was a really great avenue to do so because so many women that are in STEM fields uh, need a lot of support in kind of identifying what's next for them and what are some potential career paths for them. And so I can definitely speak to a research trajectory. My longer term goal is really to be a professor and a a supervisor of a lab one day. That's where I'm looking. (laughs) A long road, (laughs) but uh, that's where I'm trying to go. And so I can definitely shed light on what that process may look like for students that are also potentially interested in that, which I think is important. Oh, that's great, because we need more people like you to, to get others interested. So so that's fantastic. But then you also volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club, or it's called something different now, Boys and Girls Club Southeast. Yeah. And I know we, we bring them to campus at the start of um, the academic year to as part of our resource fair, because we always like our students to be able to go out and volunteer yeah. in the community as well. Have you done that before coming to Kingston, or was that something you started here? Yeah, so uh, through my varsity sports at McMaster, we also had an outreach program. It was called Mac Athletes Care. And we would also go to the Boys and Girls Club of Hamilton right. and work with them. And they would also come to varsity events. So we would kind of mediate that interaction as well. Um, but I'd never gone as like a solo individual. Um, coming to Kingston, my partner actually used to work for the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, right, um, right. Shout out to Brandon Brown. He'd be very happy if I said his name. <laughs> but so he worked for them for a number of years and made a really large impact. And so getting to know him and his colleagues, I thought it was a really awesome opportunity to provide um I go on one night a week and we play volleyball so I kind of give some of my volleyball knowledge work with my coaching skills that I kind of had over the past couple years and and just support them however I can and whatever they're looking for and just try to foster a good athletic environment for them I think it's interesting because a lot of people don't quite understand when you're volunteering exactly what you're doing Mm -hmm. so I mean that was a great example that you can impart your knowledge of volleyball Um, onto it so I'm, I'm assuming you go and watch our volleyball here <laughs> I actually haven't been to a game I yet I know you can't you know you have to be careful you know you're Mac and now you're Queen I know so. I know trading trading allegiances here but um, I haven't been to any varsity events actually yet for Queens I, I went to one rugby game last year good job women's rugby yes uh, they're wonderful and that yeah looking to see a couple more they actually I think offered the boys and girls club some tickets uh, yes. to come to an upcoming event so I think when they come I'll come it's a good way to to tag team that and it'll be great to watch varsity sports again it's been a while (laughs) (laughs) and lastly you're the deputy speaker for the sgps yeah so what does that mean yes so uh SGPS is the, the Society of Graduate Professional Students. And so the deputy speaker, I'm the assistant to the speaker of the SGPS. And really, we have annual or um, monthly uh, general meetings for students where we right. talk about different motions that are being passed and right. different things that are just kind of going on within the Society of Graduate Professional Students. And so um, my major role is to really 
take meeting minutes, do a lot of note taking for that, but also just uh, kind of updating our council list and, and ensuring that we know who's on council, who to connect with, right. um, and make sure that everyone feels equally represented in that space. Um, and so that's my kind of role with that. It's good that you're getting involved in that too, because I mean, it's, you know, the SGPS does some wonderful things yeah. for, for the students here as their representatives. So mm. I'm glad you got involved in that too. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And you've you've taught me a lot about endometriosis. It's a little scary, but thank you. Good. I'm glad that we felt like it was a good we, we learned something today. We certainly did. And that's that's the beauty of these uh, interviews is I personally I learn a lot each yeah. time and it's great. It's great for having those little bit of facts to be able to sound a bit intelligent as I go out there and chat to other people. So Wonderful. thank you for doing that. Thank you that. so much for having me. So that's it, everyone. A, another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. Just type in a grad chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.